the reading this morning is Luke eleven fourteen through thirty six. Can be found on page eight sixty nine in the Pew Bibles if you'd like to follow along. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marvelled. But some of them said, "He casts out demons by Bezalbul, the prince of demons." while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will this kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Bezalbul, and if I cast out demons by Bezalbul, by whom do you, your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than him, than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. <clears throat> when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts in, at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, Something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and this generation, with, with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. And all God's people said, You probably noticed that that wasn't 1 John. If it was, we probably would have finished the whole book. 
Um, we, Pastor Brandon being away this week, next week being Life on Mission Conference, the next week being Palm Sunday, and then Easter, uh, Pastor Brandon will pick up the series on Abide in Christ in 1 John the Sunday after Easter. But this week, if you'll notice in the bulletin, it says we, the sermon title is Responses to Jesus. I'd actually like to change that title. That's an appropriate title, but one that I think is more meaningful is Avoiding Jesus. Adam and Eve, Genesis 3 tells us, they're in the garden. They sin against God, and the first thing they do is they create their own covering out of the fig leaves. Then they hear the sound of God in the garden. And what's the, after they hear the sound of God, what is the first thing they do? Hide. Humanity has been hiding from God ever since. We have a number of ways to hide from God. We're more sophisticated than Adam and Eve. We know we can't hide behind a bush or a tree. But we have a number of other ways. And the foremost way of hiding from God is to avoid Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord, open our hearts, open our eyes today. Lord, may we not be hardened, have hardened hearts and therefore avoid Jesus. Whether we know him personally or not, we, we do tend to avoid him uh, when we try to want, let's go after our own way. Lord, unite our hearts with Christ. May open our eyes to see him fully for who he is today, that he might receive the honor he's due, and we might have the life transformation that he wants to do in us. In Christ we pray. Amen. Jesus is wonderful. Why would anyone ever want to avoid him? Here is a God who became man to walk among us because he loved us. He, he came so that we might have the fullness of joy that he has. He wants to bring us into this and he directs our lives with two commands. Love God. Love one another. He stands for social justice. He cares for the poor. Jesus is everything we would want him to be. Yes, he takes sin very seriously. But he comes and he dies in our place, paying the penalty for that sin so we could have life. And he takes our death upon himself so we could live forever in a joint relationship with God. Why would we ever want to avoid him? And yet we see it happening in this passage. Uh, we read right at the beginning, now he came, as now he was casting out a demon that was mute, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. And we see three ways in which they, they try to avoid Jesus. They marveled. And then some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign of heaven. And we're going to take these ways of avoiding Jesus in the order that Jesus takes them in the text. And we're going to see a couple other ways unfolded as we go through this text. 
But what we're wanting to see most of all is what is God saying to us where we are on our spiritual journeys? What are, what are some of the principles that we can take out of what's happening at this time in Jesus' life so that we would not avoid Jesus, but we'd really come draw ever closer to him? So the first way they avoid Jesus is they try to explain away Jesus' claims and his power. You see, he, he casts out a demon. Some marvel. Some accuse him of doing it by Satan. Others say that's not enough. There's another sign. But one thing you'll notice is there not one person in the crowd who says that, that wasn't a real miracle. No, that's not some magic trick. No one at that time accused Jesus of not performing a miracle, not bringing an exorcism. Nobody ever in all of Scripture said, no, that wasn't a miracle. They had to get around it another way. Even at the trial of Jesus, when they brought in people to give false testimony against Jesus, they brought in liars not one of them said, no, he, he's, he's a magician. He's not doing real miracles. You see, 2,000 years later, we might sit in our armchairs and say, no, he, Jesus didn't really do miracles. But everybody that lived with him, including his opponents who wanted him dead, never said he didn't do miracles. Instead, they, said, they explain away the miracles by saying he does it by the power of Satan. He casts out demons by demons. Now, that sounds very blasphemous. It is. It's blasphemous. And yet, it's more honest than many of us today. Because it is a possibility. Jesus did a miracle. He cast out a demon. How did he do that? And they're looking at it and saying, well... We can't say it's of God, so how can we explain this miracle away? Hmm. He does it by the power of the devil himself. See, that's one of the options, but one of the options is not what's very current today, and that is the view that Jesus is a good moral teacher. He stands in that pantheon of great religious leaders like Muhammad and Buddha and Confucius and Moses. But we can't say that Jesus doesn't give us that option. A Scottish preacher and Old Testament professor named Rabbi Duncan 200 years ago uncovered the faulty logic in that. It's passed down to us today. It's essentially this. Jesus said he's the son of God. He's divine. Now, either that's true or it's not true. If it's not true, Jesus wasn't divine, then either he knew it wasn't true or he didn't know it was true. So if he knew it wasn't true, then what is he doing? He's lying. He's presenting a false picture of himself. And that lie is so great that it's a type of lie the devil would bring. And that's exactly what the religious leaders are saying. He has a demon. He is a liar, a false prophet. 
His power is demonic. The other option is that Jesus, it wasn't true, but Jesus really thought it was true. He wasn't God, but he really thought he was God. That's a lunatic. We put them in in, in asylums today. The third option is it was true. If it was true, then Jesus is Lord. And so that's known as the Lord, liar, lunatic, a trilemma. It's really popularized by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He puts it this way. I am here to prevent anyone saying that, that really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a good human teacher. He had not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither lunatic nor fiend, And consequently, however strange and terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. We have to choose. That's the honest solution. Even one of the uh, the most popular and foremost atheists of our day, Christopher Hitchens, said this, I am bound to say that C.S. Lewis is more honest than those who claim Jesus is a great moral teacher. How is it moral to claim a monopoly on access to heaven or to threaten waverers with everlasting fire, let alone to condemn fig trees and persuade devils to infest the bodies of pigs? Such a man, if not divine, would be a sorcerer or a fanatic. And of course, Hitchens chooses the latter too. He's honest. And we have to face that question honestly. Now, there's a fourth category that is given today, and that is that Jesus is a legend. That Jesus didn't really say the things that are in the Bible. He didn't make those claims. It's the disciples embellished the story, and it grew bigger and bigger until finally in 90 AD when John writes the proclamation of Jesus Christ as God is... is, is a clarion call to everyone. But that view has many, many problems because it's not honestly dealing with the Scriptures. Because the other three Gospels are written much earlier within the very lifetime of those who were witnesses to the life, death, and apparent resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet they also make claims of Jesus' deity. But you can go back even earlier to the time of Jesus' death in the letters of Paul. When Paul writes about him, he writes even earlier than the Synoptic Gospels are written. 
within a couple decades of the life of Jesus, yet he's making the same claims as he proclaims the Trinity. And he talks about God being very, Jesus being very God, yet taking off his robes of glory and coming down to us. Paul said it. But we can go even closer. That is, believing and secular scholars today agree that the gospel of Jesus Christ, which claims Christ is has died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's pretty miraculous that he rose from the dead within months of Jesus' death. The legend, the option of legend is not there for us. We must make a decision. Now, Jesus defends himself against this charge uh, by essentially saying, your charges are nonsense. And he says, for three reasons, your charges are nonsense. First, he says, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a divided household falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will he, his kingdom stand? For I say, for you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. Logical. Satan's got a kingdom he's trying to build. But if Jesus is casting out these demons and building the alternative kingdom, why would Satan ever do that? Now, we might think, well, he might do that to delude people into false thinking. But Jesus isn't simply saying, I come as the Messiah. He says, I come to bring a kingdom of life. I come to bring a kingdom that reverses the curse. The curse brought death. I come to bring eternal life. The curse brought poverty, I say, to care for the poor. The curse brought hatred, self-centeredness, and bitterness. I call you to love, goodness, caring, support. Everything that Satan brought in the curse, Jesus is reversing as he brings the kingdom of God. Would Satan do that? course not. Jesus gives a second defense as he says, but it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Therefore, if, if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Whoever is not with me is against me. Okay, the next point is, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So his second point in defense is, you have exorcists, and you say, ah, they're casting out demons by God. Why are you using a different standard for me, Jesus, than you're using for the others? If I am casting out demons, demons by demons, why do you not say your own exorcists are casting out demons by demons? But instead, you're saying they cast out demons by God. Hold me by the same standards. Obviously, you are prejudiced against me. The evidence does not matter. And then thirdly, he says, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons... Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had written of this event. 
So what he's saying here is, okay, I'm bringing you the kingdom of God. I'm doing everything that Isaiah said the Messiah would do. I'm fulfilling the kingdom of God. Why are you not believing the scriptures themselves? And so we are left with the same challenge today. Jesus has miraculous, he has made miraculous claims about himself. We have to choose. It's not a legend. Certainly not casting out demons by demons. He's not a lunatic. And anyone who holds those views is prejudiced in using, not, not seeing the evidence properly. We cannot avoid Jesus by recategorizing him and saying he didn't say what he said. He didn't claim what he did. He does. We have to make a decision about Christ. A second way of avoiding is to try to remain neutral. For instance, we might look at that evidence and say, liar, Lord, lunatic. I don't want to accept Jesus as Lord because that means he's making a claim on my life. But I don't want to say he's a liar or a lunatic because I don't really think he is. I'll just remain neutral. That's okay, right? And Jesus says, no, it's not okay. Verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. See, Jesus is saying, you cannot remain neutral. That's not an option. He's just talked about how he is bringing the kingdom of God. There's two kingdoms in this world. There is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. If we're not working for the kingdom of God, what are we working for? Whose kingdom are we working for? The Apostle Paul said that Satan is the God of this world. There's no neutral here. If you were standing in the crowd on the night Jesus was arrested, and Pontius Pilate comes out and he says, I find no guilt in this man. What should I do with him? And everyone around you starts crying out, Crucify him, crucify him. Can you be neutral? If you keep quiet and let the crowds crucify Jesus, are you not complicit in some way while you try to be neutral? You just allow him to be crucified? Or, Jesus said that he is the way to salvation. He can bring you eternal life and he is the only way to that salvation. If we do not take that life-saving message to our world, are we not like a person who has a life-saving medicine for a dying person, but we don't tell them that we have it and we just let them die? If it's remaining neutral, I won't say anything bad about the medicine. I just won't offer it to them. There is no... Neutral. Even an empty cup has air in it. It doesn't have life-giving water with which you can refresh yourselves 
and give to others. Um, But Jesus goes on. It's not only damaging to other people if you keep the message, if, if you scatter instead of gathering. It's harmful to yourself. And he gives this, uh, he gives this little story about the demon. He says, if, if, if a person cleans out their house, gets rid of the demon, and it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding some, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. The last state of that person will be worse than the first. Now, we see this as a story of demons, and it is. But Jesus is simply taken to talk about demons to apply it to people who are neutral. They say, we clean up our lives, and we can leave it vacant and empty. I can remain neutral about Jesus Christ and I'll be fine. And Jesus says, no, if you have an empty house, there are those who seek to fill it. In this case, it's demons who seek to fill it. When you remain neutral, you are not allowing Christ to fill your life with his kingdom. What are you, allow- what are you allowing to fill your life and your mind and direct you? Essentially, you are left to modern-day culture. There's good pieces to it, but there's also very harmful pieces to it. Our culture is driven, yes, by the colleges. It's driven by Hollywood. It's driven by the media. It is driven. It's driven by the commercials. It's driven by the peers who have adopted these uh, myopic values. We are filling our lives with something. We can't say, I am neutral. Everybody wants a piece of your life and to direct your life. If you are not allowing Christ to direct it, we might say, well, I'm allowing myself, but yourself is formed by all the information, all the thinking that is coming into you. It's neutral is a way to try to avoid Jesus. But it's damaging to our world and it's damaging to us when we try to stay there. Right in the middle of all of this this tension and this conversation, a woman begins to shout out. He said these things. A woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And he said, Blessed are Rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And what you see is, remember, we first said we avoid people, we avoid Jesus by saying he has a demon. He's, lo- he's a lunatic, he's, he's a liar. Second, it's the group that marveled. You'll notice the group that marveled, it doesn't say, and they, all, they believe. There's no group that says, we all believed. The group that marveled is those who are like, wow. That's something, but they try to remain neutral. But there is a woman who seems to be a believer. Because when you honor a person, you often point to their family, and you honor their family. So this woman seems to be a believer who says, Blessed is the mother of Jesus. And yet Jesus reacts to that. Why? Because it's another way of avoiding Jesus, and that is substituting something else that's spiritual for Christ. 
She substitutes Jesus' mother, Mary, for Jesus. That's a safe place to be because Jesus has these demands. He has these claims on our lives. Mary doesn't. So if I follow him, it's her, it's a lot easier than following Jesus. Many of us avoid Jesus by following spiritual substitutes. And I'm sure what comes to your mind as you read this passage is those who worship Mary. And that is the case, easier to follow her. But there's many other substitutes. Very often it's the church. If any of you saw the movie Spotlight, where you see the uncovering of something that is repugnant to Jesus himself is covered up by the church. Why? Because the institution was more important than Christ and his children. And so you substitute the institution of the church for Christ. It's a way of avoiding him. But Jesus said, you know, you believers are doing that. In 1 Corinthians, he says, there are some among you who are honoring superheroes. They say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And what they've done is they've found their identity in the superhero Christians who've discipled them rather than in Christ. And we do that with our superhero preachers and our superhero authors and our superhero churches. We substitute them. As long as we're connected to them, as long as we espouse what they espouse, we're good in our Christian lives. No, it's all about Christ. And hopefully these people, these churches, these authors and speakers are drawing us to Christ. Use them not as superheroes, but as avenues to Jesus Christ himself. And if they are not avenues to Christ, they are not the ones to be listening to. And the churches, too, they'll take a piece of what Christ said and they'll exalt that and substitute that for Christ. Many liberal churches have done that with the social gospel and caring for the poor. Those are deep in the heart of Jesus. But they make the church about the social gospel and leave out the spiritual gospel. And they talk about Jesus, but they don't let Jesus lay claim to their lives. But the conservatives do it as well. They take a piece of what Jesus teaches. And then we might say, we might do the same thing and exalt traditional morality or certain political positions and say, see, that's the Christian position. If I hold that, I'm a good Christian. If I say these moral things, I'm a good Christian. No, a good Christian is being united to Jesus Christ, heart and soul, and walking with him. We all substitute, or we could easily substitute something else spiritual for Jesus. I know those who say, you know, I'm not much about the church, but I'm spiritual. I don't need Christ, but I'm still spiritual. And of course, they have spiritual gurus who teach them. It's another way of avoiding Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't just say, I'm going to help you. He does. He says, I'm going to lead you as well. Jesus' response to the woman covers why we want to avoid Jesus. He says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It is all about following Jesus. That's why we, why, that's why we try to avoid him. 
Um, NYU professor Thomas Nagel, not a believer in any way, admits to this, what happens in the hearts of many of us. He says, I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want to be, I don't want the universe to be like that. I don't want there to be a God. While I try to be objective, I have all sorts of personal reasons for I don't want there to be a God. I want to be able to make my own decisions. I do not want to submit. And I think that's the reason many of us try to avoid Jesus because he says, I want to be Lord of your life. And we don't want that. I remember when I was, uh, before I, I accepted Christ, my brother, who was, had become a Christian two years earlier, died in a tragic motorcycle accident on his 22nd birthday. And after the funeral, I was riding back up to campus with one of my roommates, and he said, you know, it's times like these that I question if God exists. And I thought about that for a moment. I said, you know, yeah, it is times like these that I question if God exists. But when I really search, I'm honest with myself, I realize there's proof that God exists. So when I question God's existence, it's because I don't want there to be a God. Because if there is a God, I'm accountable to him. We have spiritual substitutes. We avoid Jesus because we don't want to be accountable to him. But can we trust the one who died for our sins to give us life and joy? Can we trust him to lead? Yes, we can. But ultimately, Jesus now gets to the real heart of the issue. We believe what we want to believe. He says it in this beginning in verse 34. Your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of life. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you is darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part darkness, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Okay, what has Jesus said here? He's essentially saying, we either have light, uh, eyes of light or eyes of darkness. Paul talks about it as we either have open hearts or closed hearts. And you probably know that in relationships. There are some people you are open to, you think the best of them, everything you, they do you interpret in a positive way. And then there are people you don't like. And it's like they can do no right. Everything they do, they might do the same thing this close friend does, but you interpret it darkly. And that's what Jesus is saying is it's all about your eye. Do you have an eye of light that is open to Jesus? If you do, the evidence is there. And when you open your eye to Jesus Christ, he fills your life with light. 
But if you have a dark eye, if your heart is closed to Jesus, you'll find every reason to not believe in him. You'll have every objection that keeps you from believing. And he says, your life will be filled with darkness. I believe because I am open to Jesus Christ. There was a time I kept avoiding him, thinking I could be neutral. But it's really not the evidence as much as the way we want to see that evidence that determines determines our verdict toward Christ. Aldous Huxley, atheist philosopher, admitted to this. He said, no philosophy is completely disinterested. The pure love of truth is always mingled to some extent with need, consciously or unconsciously felt by even the noblest and most intelligent philosophers to justify a given form of personal or social behavior, to rationalize the traditional prejudices of a given class or community. What has he said? It's all about the eye. You take the evidence and do with it what you want. And he says you do with it what you want because you want to justify the way you live. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Let your eye be full of light. Be open to me and you will find a transformation of life that is light. Um, Jesus continues, and we didn't read this, and I, I won't preach it very deeply. The next section about the Pharisees actually connects to what Jesus just said. And I think what he's saying, I won't, I won't pull it apart for you, but what he is saying in this next section is essentially, the Pharisees, first of all, they're trying to say, we have an open heart to you, Jesus. They invite Jesus to dinner. Isn't that an open heart? But Jesus doesn't ceremonially wash his hands. And so immediately they are judging Jesus for, as a sinner for not washing his hands. And it's a reminder. We may say, I'm open to Jesus. And yet we have a critical dark eye that is trying to find everything wrong in a Christian or everything wrong in Jesus possible. That isn't openness to Jesus. But it goes deeper. Jesus includes this section because the Pharisees represent God to the Jewish world. And they're not living right with God. See, a lot of people would look at the Pharisees and say, oh, that's the way godly people live. Jesus wants to say, no, that isn't the way they live. There are others who look at the Pharisees and say, I don't want to have any part of Judaism. That's what Judaism is. And Jesus is warning the church because the church is making the same mistake very often in the same legalism that the Pharisees had. And because the church represents Jesus today, he has this entire section where he condemns Phariseeism and he's trying to, and he's condemning the church that is falling into the same errors, legalistic moralism of the Pharisees. You see, today the church represents Jesus Christ to the world. What does the world see? 
There was a survey done a, quite a few years ago, maybe 15 years ago, where unbelievers asked, what's a Christian? And the answer that, that kept coming up was, Christians are people who bring their Bibles to church and judge other people. Remember what they're saying? The Pharisees. That's what we're seeing. Jesus warns against that. We shouldn't be that. There's a recent survey. It asked unbelievers, do you know a Christian? 87% said, yes, we know a Christian. Then they asked the question, does the Christian you know, what do you know about Christians? Is their lifestyle a positive influence? 15% of people said, Christians we know, they live good lives that are positive influences for others. 15%. That means 85% of Christians either live just like the rest of the world or they have a negative, they're seen as having a negative influence on people. The question is, we are the presence of Christ today. Are we living out Jesus in such a way that the world who sees the church can say, Jesus makes a difference. Jesus is light. Because remember when Jesus says, let your eye be light, he starts with, anyone who lights a lamp puts it on a lampstand. We need to be the light of Jesus Christ to a world who wants to avoid Christ by looking at the history of the church, by looking at the uh, um, the Crusades, by looking at the, the religious wars, by looking at uh, Ireland, by looking at the Inquisition, by looking at the racism in Christ- among Christians in the 60s and saying, I don't want that, Jesus. We just give him another reason to avoid Jesus. But when the church doesn't live like the church, don't reject Jesus. Jesus should be the issue. Martin Luther King put it this way in his letter from the Birmingham jail when he was writing to churches that were racist and not supporting civil rights. He didn't say, I don't want anything to do with Christ. You're all racists. Instead, he said, you are not living up to Jesus Christ himself. Become more like Christ. And that's his clarion call to us today. Live, let us first become more like Christ together. Let us be a light to the world so no one has an excuse to avoid Jesus Christ because he brings life. He brings goodness. He brings purpose. He brings fulfillment. He brings joy. Everyone should have that. Everyone should have Christ. Our Father, that's our prayer. The people we know, we pray pray for them, that they might know you. But Lord, I pray first that I, that we might know you fully, to be the light of the world, as you called us to be. In Christ's name we pray, amen.